Good, good day, good day, everyone. Good morning, class. Welcome to Art Eater Podcast Number Five. Uh, yeah, very excited to be here. So, um, all right, this, this podcast was not brought to you by Uniqlo Airism Boxer Briefs. They bring you comfort unlimited in any season for any person anywhere. Featuring the latest Japanese fiber technology, Airism offers incredible comfort winning accolades from Uniqlo customers in international markets since 2012. We're, we're not endorsed by them. I just, I, I really like those those briefs. Have, have you guys ever worn them? Yes. Yeah, I'm wearing them now. Yeah, yeah, me um, too. For tropical yeah. countries. Uh, it's, it's perfect for any weather. It's, uh, they're, they're made out of this super thin material, so it's like a second layer of skin. Yeah. And, um, I, okay, I'm going to give you guys a, a life tip, all you listeners out there. If, you, if you're traveling and you need to uh, travel light, all you need is two pairs of these things because you, you you wear one and then you can just hand wash it and you just dry it. You just leave it out to dry overnight. It'll it'll be fine the next morning. You just, yeah. just keep switching. But is the comfort really unlimited? Yes. I would <laughs> no, I, I seriously do like these things. <laughs> they're, when, they're, I, when I wear other briefs, I just think about why I don't have just another pair of errorism to wear. Yes, I, I know that feeling. It reminds me of the concept behind the um, ex officio ones where you can wash them, but for some reason without ever seeing, having seen these, and I hear Uniqlo, I just imagine that they have like comic book prints on them or other cool art. Oh man, that would be oh. awesome. Unfortunately, oh, yeah. they're just kind of like a normal pattern, but like... Yeah, yeah, they're really plain. They're just like silver. I mean, like having a just like a monster hunter wyvern on my airism would be perfect. Oh man, that is that is a million dollar idea. I I, I feel like Uniqlo has really set that expectation in my mind, though. Yeah, they have yeah. all those great. Am I, am I wrong in thinking that? Yeah. I don't know. I I, I hope they're listening because we we just gave them a a billion dollar idea there. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Okay. Okay. So uh, today's podcast is going to be about Vagrant Storm. Uh, so last week was the uh, 20th anniversary of Vagrant Storm. It originally came out uh, February 10th uh, in the year 2000, uh, and it was an amazing action RPG for the uh, PS1, although it was so much more than that. Even, even, it's even hard to pin down as a, as a genre. It, it was so many different things, but um, it's a real gem of a game, and uh, yeah, we are going to talk about this game today. The game director even, I think, uh, kind of said things where it was it had so many mixes of different genres in it that uh, he was he, he felt like adventure was an appropriate thing to say, but it wasn't really the genre that the game fell in. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I mean, it was an action RPG, but it wasn't. It really was an action RPG. Like a lot of action RPGs are just action games where you like level up, right? That's that's almost like every game now. That's just the standard. But like, this was a game where you really it really leaned into the RPG elements. Like you, you really had to learn the systems and learn like how to fight the monsters and do a lot of planning. I I think you could compare it to like uh, like eighties wizardry, but now on the PlayStation One and yes. really thinking about like what is the gameplay you can do the now that you couldn't do in like the eighties. NES or PC engine oh, yeah. or whatever it was on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it is a dungeon crawler, right? Like, it's, it's literally yeah. about a man descending into a dungeon and, and yeah. conquering. Yeah, kind of. 
Uh, you know, now that I think about it, I can't think of a whole lot of games that actually do feel the way that Vagrant Story does because it's it's sort of a real time combat system. Uh, it tells you stories very cinematically in the same way that like a Metal Gear Solid does. But then the yeah. battle system isn't really real time because you have you you have kind of a lot of understanding and planning you have to do in the middle of the fight in terms of where you hit things. And I just uh, I remember it's one of those games where uh, one of the first I think I can remember where it became really, really important to understand the system, like understanding the type of damage and where to hit your enemies, like was a pretty big delta between whether or not you were going to win a fight and whether or not you were going to die frustratingly. Yeah, yeah. Um, to those unfamiliar, um, so the, the game takes place in a top-down view in 3D. You, you run around in real time, and then when you get into encounters, um, you're still running in real time, but then when you attack, uh, this kind of sphere emanates from you. It tells you your attack range. If the enemy falls within that range, um, then you can attack them, but you, you can also target uh, their limbs. And um, there's all sorts of different like affinities, and, and you're, you got to use the right weapon for the right enemy. And um, you know, it, it's not arbitrary. I think it's, it, it's not the kind of RPG where you can just like grind and level up and power through things. Like you, you really need to like know how it works. There's like a sharp, blunt, and I forget the third one, but there's basically three types of attack damage. Piercing. And like a piercing, thank you, yes. Uh, and knowing what those are and then applying them to different enemies or different areas, I remember was a key part of uh, whether or not you would... Because if you didn't know the type of damage and you didn't pay attention to learning who the enemies were and uh, scanning or analyzing them, uh, you could hit them and do, like I said, a frustratingly small amount of damage. And, yep. and it wouldn't seem like you were doing anything wrong. Yeah, yeah, they're, and they're... It, it fits into the the story. Like uh, the main character is pretty much like uh, like medieval solid snake. He's a government assassin, so he has to know his opponent. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He has to know their weakness. And the yeah. diff, like the uh, the way you truly level up in the game isn't just like oh my numbers got bigger. It's just it's knowing this dragon I can cut it in the throat instead of like bouncing off of its head. Yep. Uh, Andy, yeah. Andy, what have you done? I, I now can't not compare him to Medieval Solid Snake, and I'm starting to draw all these parallels in my mind that I don't think actually exist. But like, oh, oh wait, they, uh, they have you ever seen the uh, the interview between uh, Yasumi Matsuno and uh, and uh, Hideo Kojima? Oh no, I haven't. No, no, I haven't. No, they. Well, we'll we'll get to that later. But uh, yeah, I can just talk about okay. like the the things that. Kojima compliments. They start talking about genes. <laughs> do, that, do you mean... That's amazing. Okay. You, okay. Wait, you mean like yeah wait 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 you mean like we're we we're gonna go with like genes like the the thing you inherit from your ancestors or genes like pants? <laughs> mm. oh, the ancestors. Mm. Yeah. All right. Let's let's get into that in a minute. But um, yeah, let, let's just quickly talk about the gameplay a little more. Um, and I wanted to uh, add as part of what we're talking about as well, and I, I don't know if this is part of what you're talking about in the gameplay, but I believe this is one of the first fully 3D games, right, that Square made? 
Oh yeah, there's um, no pre-rendered background. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think from Square, uh, it, it is one of their earlier ones. I mean, Square had their fingers in all sorts of genres back then, so they did have like full 3D, uh, you know, racing games. Um, they had that that really cool full 3D action game that Ukes uh, developed. Uh, Brave Fencer was that before this? This around the same era. Brave Fencer was '96, I think. Y yeah, yeah. I mean, oh gosh, what a wonderful era. Um, but yeah, I, I guess to put it in context, though, Vagrant Story felt like the equivalent of a AAA prestige game back then. So it was one of their main titles, right? Like they had a lot of weird offshoot titles, but um, I'd say for like a serious, it felt like a new uh, franchise they were developing, uh, even though it was only meant to be one game. And, um, you know, the full backing of the studio, I think it was their first one of their first full 3D games to, to that effect, yeah. Sorry, Brave Fencer was 98, so actually 98. that puts it that puts it squarely in the same 98-2000 era that we're talking about. Oh, okay. uh, Parasite Eve was also 98. Yeah, yeah. that wasn't full 3D, though. Um, are you sure? Like, I don't think it had full wasn't 3D camera. No, no. Did it have the pre-rendered backgrounds? The characters looked... Very nice, and they had very okay. Nice um, I think part one had pre-rendered, and then part two uh, was 3D fully. Yes, yes, and that that was the same year. That was also 2000. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, oh yeah. Okay. Just real quick, going back to Vagrant Story's gameplay. Um, that that's sort of a, a, a complaint that maybe some people have had over the years revisiting it is they feel like it's a little obtuse. Like it doesn't really hold your hand and teach you. Like you you have to experiment. You have to even just figure out for yourself, like, oh, you have to try out different weapons on different enemies. Um, but I what, actually think... Oh, go ahead. It it had that, like... Uh, well, one of the things it did, like... The typical wizardry dungeon crawl is, like, you know, you go in and you, like, kill some slimes. Mm -hmm. but the very first battle in Vagrant Story is going from, like, oh, is this a story cutscene right into, like an undead wyvern and just fell through the ceiling and now it's a combat and now I'm in control of the character. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's closer to like, say, uh, Demon Souls, right? Or Dark Souls than, than uh, like Wizard. Yeah, that was, that was, yeah, that's like the Demon Souls intro where like they just try to kill you in the start. Yeah, so I think in that sense, um, it's sort of, I don't want to say it's ahead of its time, more like the pendulum is swinging back has already swung back to that sort of design where it's like, look, you died, figure out what to do next, right? Um, which also works with the fiction. I think um, in interviews, uh, the, the uh, director, Yasumi Matsuno, he said he wanted the monsters in this game to feel strong. Like, they're stronger than you. They're stronger than a human. But you use your knowledge, your wits, and your skills to kill them. Yeah. That's, that's how humans kill monsters. Stick yep. them where they're weak. Yep. Well, and you also, in order to learn the weaknesses of most of the enemies, you had to analyze them and actually, uh, I forgot if you if you accessed it via the battle screen or if you had to do it later, but you, in order to learn what the weaknesses were, it wouldn't just tell you, you had to actively figure it out. Not just the yeah. trial and error, but you could also uh, analyze them in combat. Yeah, yeah. There, there was also a chain chaining system. Um, I think you could... Kind of, if you timed your attacks right, you could keep chaining them up to uh, 15 times. Um, so that you know it, it was skill based, but at the same time, they they 
they kind of nerfed it on on purpose. So like, if you only got good at that, you you still wouldn't advance. Like, you, you still needed to figure out the weapon affinities and stuff. Like, if, if you didn't know the right way to attack an enemy, even if you're chaining, like, it's not going to kill them. So. Oh yeah, you could just keep on like chaining at a spot that it's really armored. So you still need to aim. You still need to know their weak point. You know, study your opponent and. Yeah. Uh, that kind of timed chaining in a like semi turn base or RPG or semi action base like uh, Mario RPG did that with jumping. Oh right, yeah, yeah. That 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 was one of their last um, SNES RPGs, right, from SquareSoft. Yeah. Uh, great game. Okay, um, let's talk about. The you know what what let's let's dig into how great the art was in this game. Uh, th this game was absolutely uh, beautiful. Um, I noticed uh, you know it, a couple people were talking about it online. It was kind of trending on Twitter a little bit, um, and a lot of people were saying like, "My God, like this game's beautiful. It's it's it still looks great. It's it's not like oh it looks good for you know 20 years ago. Like by modern standards, I think it's still a wonderful looking game." Um, in my opinion, I think it's the best-looking low-poly 3D game, um, even better than Metal Gear, uh, which is yeah. quite a bit. Um, I think that's the core of what ultimately made it look good. I think we used <laughs> to talk about, Richmond, how uh, the limitations of not having a lighting engine and having to rely on artistry uh, in order to achieve effects, I, I think, is what happened here. The, the fact that it, this is one of their first all 3D games and it had such memory limitations on the PlayStation, I think actually put limitations around the artist that I allowed them to really flourish in terms of how they treated the textures. Absolutely. Um, so it, it was also on the tail end of the uh, PS1's life cycle. So um, uh, according to interviews, I, I, by the way, I'm, I'm going to be referencing a certain interview from uh, Shmupulations. Uh, they have a really great interview with uh, Yasumi Matsuno. So, Please look that up, S-H-M-U-P-L-A-T-I-O-N-S.com, uh, shmopulations. Um, so in an interview from there, uh, Matsuno says that, uh, so they had previously directed uh, Final Fantasy Tactics, which um, was, you know, had 3D background, sprite-based characters. They decided to go full 3D for Vagrant Story um, because they saw the, uh, so the PS2 also came out in the year 2000. Um, so they saw that was looming. They knew 3D was going to be the future, and they figured, okay, well, let's let's do a 3D game. Let's really like figure out what this is about. And my God, they like maximized what the PS1 was capable of. And uh, Sean, like you were saying, I think the reason the game looks so good, and especially within those limits, is um, they brought uh, decades of experience working on sprite games into 3D. They it's essentially a 3D sprite game like um sean and i we we actually started our our, our our professional careers together in college we did uh, a lot of early uh 3d phone games like pre-iphone like super simple like less powerful than the ps i call it hardcore mobile hardcore mobile yeah, yeah so we came yeah. up in the hardcore mobile like early 3d j2me super low def um you know like we had to create characters out of less than like 400 triangles not polygons, triangles. 
you know, and, and texture maps uh, limited to like two, 256 by 256 resolution. And uh, that's what they were working with on, on Vagrant Story. And, and even 256 by 256 was like a luxurious amount. Usually it was much less uh, for individual models and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we, we studied a lot of uh, uh, square square work. And, uh, man, like the the... The texturing in this game is, is masterful. Like, um, if, if you Google Ashley Riot texture map, uh, you, they maximized that that sprite, and it's 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 pretty much. I'm I'm absolutely certain they, they painted it like sprite art, like dot by dot. And um, the way the UVs are unwrapped, like they absolutely maximized that space. And this was at a time where like you didn't have UV unwrappers that were very like reliable. And even if you did, you still needed to tweak the heck out of it by hand. It, it was like playing a puzzle game. And they, yeah, those things are wonderful. Well, and the understanding of what it looked like in 3D was, I think, also difficult at the time. Because and it struck me again replaying some of, it, especially the intro area, is they get a, there is like a very small smidge of a lighting engine, but they use it uh, rather than placing lighting onto the texture. They they basically backlight the models so that they can get like really high contrast light effects. Oh, the, the rim could, lighting. Yeah. yeah, the rim lighting, exactly. But the, there was almost certainly no way for them to preview what that would actually look like in their engine. So they they had to, and th this is one of the things that I think they played into this kind of monochrome style that has color in it, which is, uh, and it was it's there's, there's a parallel between the way the faces look to me in Metal Gear and in this game, which is that they don't really fade to they don't shade to black very often. They actually rely on browns and uh, colored lighting. So even though this is very monochrome, especially in their faces, you can see how they they treat color to make it feel dimensional, even though they actually don't have any polygons in that area of the model. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You mentioned the rim lighting. I recently read. Do Do you know how they did that? You're right, not, it was not real-time lighting. They duplicated the model, changed the the lighting value on it to make it lighter, and then scooted it to the side of the character to get that perfect uh, rim. Wow. <laughs> they just totally cheated it. It's low-tech yeah. solution. That's, but, that's, but, that's so, so simple that it's it's brilliant. But yeah, it's, it's, it's totally, it's got that human touch, you know? And and um, I, I think a lot of the lighting in it must have been done with uh, vertex lighting, which is not is not real time lighting. You know, it's not it's nothing like how uh, modern games uh, work, simulating photons. Um, Sean, you, you remember doing vertex lighting on like early uh, game levels, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was, it, it's it was essentially fun. controlling light as a gradient um, based on the the verts. The vertices. So, I, I, everyone familiar with 3D modeling, um, you know, the surfaces are made out of the dots that you see on a 3D model. Those are the verts, and then you know they connect together to to make a face, which is you know the polygon uh, is calculated in triangles. So, um, vertex lighting is a, a much simpler way of doing lighting, where you you pretty much have to choose by hand, like okay, like I want these verts to be lighter. And I wanted to kind of gradiate uh, like this towards these these verts. So, uh, it's, well, it's also a technique that if you haven't done low poly, it might be kind of confusing because nowadays models and games or engines have you know millions of vertices because oh, yeah. you know they're using tri you know high polygon models. 
they're relying on normal maps and stuff. But if you're trying to imagine in your mind's audience how this looks, usually you're dealing with a model that has a visible number of vertices that you can control. So you're you're looking at specific planes of which you're projecting the texture so that you can then use the vertex to broadcast out the light. So you have, you know, you're, you're getting right down to exactly how you build the the, the sides of the, the shape uh, rather than kind of the general model. Uh, you know, yeah. you have to really understand how many vertices you can use. Yeah, it's it sounds technical, but the gist of it is um, it was all hand done. Like it wasn't like okay, change some sliders and then preview. Like it was like no, like we're we're gonna make it look exactly like this. Um, even they faked a lot of like cool shadows and stuff. Like you you walk by like a fire behind a grate and it's casting a shadow on the ground. And again, it's not real time lighting. It's just good use of uh, textures. It just feels like a miniatures diorama. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. Like, because um, I, I haven't heard of, like, uh, Akihiko Yoshida, like, doing any miniatures, but he did grow up in the time when, like, the major Japanese fantasy artists, like, because video game graphics were, weren't, like, super great or detailed, so all the big fantasy artists were doing, like, magazine covers and like a model kit boxes yeah um w one of the big influences on the the visual style of of um this team this team of uh, Yasu yasumi matsuno and the the lead artist uh, akihiko yoshida uh they really liked an old pc game called uh, carthage by uh Cygnosis. um if, if you look at that game it, it, you'll see it's very similar stylistically to uh, ogre battle and uh, yeah, a lot of those early PC games owe a lot to uh, min miniatures, right? Yeah. Andy, you can talk about this. Um, you know way more about this than I do. I mean, it's uh, miniatures war games is like where a lot of uh, you know video game conventions come from. It's where like the role playing game Dungeons and Dragons comes from. Like idea of you know we have uh, two different teams like pick from the law or the chaos side, they have this aesthetic assemble your party and then go like fight each other. Yeah, and um, I, a lot of basic things about games come from that, like the concept of like hit points and experience and, and just like kind of modulating, <laughs> abstracting all this stuff as its roots in um, tabletop games. Uh, but going back to the aesthetics, uh, this is something Andy and I talk about a lot. Um, when, when you play miniatures, you know, like like Warhammer, Warhammer 40k, um, the figures have to be designed in a way where they're they're legible from very far away. They're they're tiny. Um, yeah. And so they need. You have to really think about what details you want to put in there because because uh, you can't do too much. Like you know, much like sprite based games, low poly games. There's only so much detail you can put on the figure at that size, especially back um, back in the day before 3D printing. Uh, this stuff had to be done by hand, and, and casting also wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. So the, the whole thing, you know, this is something I'm sure we'll come back to over and over again during this podcast and future ones, is uh, the limitations kind of help refine the design. Like, when, when you have those limits, you have to think, okay, what are the most important shapes here. 
you know, and, and how do I make this tiny little character instantly identifiable? How do I give it a good silhouette? You know, how do I give it distinct details that are visible from, from far away? Even modern Ash. games still struggle with that. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, especially when you have, like, a lot more resources, you might just kind of get lost in that. But, yeah, you know, there's Flair and, like, Ashley Riot has, uh, like, he has pretty weird hair. His, he's got, like, antennas. His hair is distinct, though. Like, it doesn't yeah. matter what angle you see him from. It, it's very clear. Uh, even, uh, I think, in the the opening, there's a part where he's kind of, like, squatted behind a thing like he's hiding and they don't the guards don't see him yet and even the silhouette you can see that part of his hair kind of like sticking up a little bit yeah yeah his head shape's very unique actually that's, that's a good point it's and then you have like you know solid snakes bandana yeah like was there some kind of you know reference or influence there oh okay let's get into that um when they were developing uh, Vagrant Story, Metal Gear came out. Uh, when, when did Metal Gear come out? Was that 99 or 98? I feel like it was 98. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, so they the team experienced what they called Metal Gear Shock. <laughs> Metal yeah. Gear was so good that they were like, guys, like we gotta, we gotta like figure out how, you know, go back to the drawing board. Like, how can we make our game compete with this? How can we make it even better? Um, so you can see, like, Metal Gear, this is a whole nother podcast, but um, that was, like, the first real-time 3D game on, on console that felt really complete. Like, at the time, pre-rendered backgrounds were still a thing because most people just couldn't uh, make a very whole-feeling world using the such limited um, power software, right? Hardware. I feel, but, um, I feel like you actually have uh, two sides of the spectrum in this time because you have the Final Fantasies where... Uh, they place 3D rendered models on top of pre-rendered, and then you have yep. the exact opposite in Xenogears with them being yeah. like, oh yeah, we're gonna have a 3D background and place sprites on it. Yeah, yeah. And then um, and then Metal Gear came out, and it's like, we're gonna do everything real-time. Uh, even the cutscenes are real-time. It's gonna flow totally smoothly from cutscene to gameplay, and it's gonna feel really seamless. And uh, that really influenced this game. And um, okay, you guys mentioned the faces, right? This is one area where um, I think Vagrant Store really pushed things because if you look at the original Metal Gear Solid for PS One, no one has any eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Much yeah, yeah, of the, they're just kind the of shadows of that game. Yeah, that, that game absolutely was also pixel art in 3D because like they had pixel art faces. That's such incredible art direction. The entire game in your memory, like everything's fully acted out. Everyone's so you know alive, but like you look back on it, they don't even have eyes. Everyone is just shaded in, you know, very abstracted, very simplified faces. Yeah. Uh, Kidio Kojima commented on that, like, in the interview with uh, Yasumi Matsuno. I am? His words were, Kojima says, I've never seen a game with beautiful graphics like Vagrant Story. This is after Metal Gear Solid came out. Mm. It actually made me look askance at the Metal Gear staff for a minute, wondering if I'd somehow miss some flaw in them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. So, yeah, like, I mean, he's half-joking, but, like, Kojima's personality very much is, like, big boss. Yeah. Like, Matsuno's much more, like, gathering everyone. So, but, so the uh, influence of Metal Gear is, and, and the fact that they interacted uh, 
at least in an interview there, is to me very obvious. I think games yeah. of the time, especially the the influence of film, like the kind of cinematic nature yeah. in the game, I think Metal Gear is the only game of that time that has a similar level of cinematic direction. And I feel like, yeah. uh, and some, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think both game directors have a pretty big background, uh, or at least a pretty big personal interest in uh, film. Yes, uh, you are super duper correct, Sean. Like uh, this interview mentions, uh, it starts with Kojima talking about how he met Yatsumi Matsuno in a stairwell waiting for John Carpenter's vampire for eight hours. So Whoa. they just talked in a stairwell wow. for eight hours about movies they like. Wow. About uh, over John Carpenter stuff. Yeah. Well, That's they were awesome. waiting for vampires at the Shibuya Parthenon Theater. Oh, that's so cool. Wow. Oh, by the way, it, you yeah. know, like, pe- people in America like to joke, like, oh, Kojima loves movies so much. Well, like, he used to write a regular movie column in um, the biggest, the top, like, Japanese game developer-focused uh, magazine. You, you can find scans of it online on uh, archive.org, actually. Oh, uh, and then there's some uh, Kawa drawings, too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shinkawa did... Did all the, the art, man. You know, there's such a strong parallel between um, uh, Ko- Kojima and uh, Matsuno, and then um, you know, they they also have yeah. the artist that defines their work that they've always yeah. worked with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like uh, Akihiko Yoshida and yeah, mm. yeah, and Shikawa. And almost it kind of feels like their stories too. Yeah, how do you mean? Well, because like uh. Yeah, it feels like you know, like 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 Solid Snake and Gray Fox, or like Big Boss and Venom Snake. Because the <laughs> other guy just doesn't talk as much; he just goes and kills things. That's true. <laughs> yeah, it's just their top soldier, right? Yeah. But 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 they get top billing. Everyone loves them. Yeah. I feel like it's a creative relationship you see in a lot of film and media. Like when people find someone they connect with and they can work really well, they tend to spend a lot of their career together. And in this Kojima Matsuno interview, uh, they talk about their, they have their movie genes because yeah. they're both like big into like cinema. You, you don't so, hear that as much about Matsuno, actually. Uh, well, I mean, you just don't hear as much about him. I mean, he's perhaps a little bit. Um, less in the public eye than Kojima is. Actually, you know, both of them make stories about, like, the secret history of how the world was made. Yes, that is a, a common theme Yeah, all their work. I, I think they also put a lot of their life experience, like, uh, into their games, working in an office. You know, um, I, I believe uh, Matsuno said in past interviews, like... Uh, uh, ogre, I, I think about like ogre battle, Final Fantasy tactics. There's always like themes of uh, class, right? Yeah, tactics. Yeah, all his all, all mm-hmm. his games have are, are about class, and um, you know that's something he felt at the the workplace, right? Japanese offices are very hierarchical. Uh, I, I, offices all around the world are just by nature, but um, especially uh, you know Japanese offices, and especially like say Square Enix in the '90s, or it was just SquareSoft then, right? They, they had their superstars, right? So there were some people who he felt like, you know, man, like, no matter what, like, this guy can't fail. Like, he's got everyone behind him, right? And then I, I think he felt like, you know, how, how do I, <laughs> how am I going to fight and, like, create something, you know, meaningful, too? But then, like, in that Kojima interview, like, where uh, Matsuno brings that up, Kojima is talking about, uh, 
Man, like reading this interview, Kojima talks like like Liquid Snake and Ocelot. It's mm. like here's one part when he's like saying CG cutscenes don't look good on the PlayStation. He's like, but Matsuno, your games don't feel that way to me. You can tell they've been made by staff with the same superior genes. People who <laughs> properly understand film. And it lends your work with an authorial quality. <laughs> nice. Oh, man. I was going to mention, speaking of teams that are, are still working together on the same thing, so uh, uh, Matsuno and a lot of the team recently kick-started Unsung Story, which is a tactics-based RPG. Uh, I think it's coming out later this year. Oh, wow. It is expected to come out this year, uh, but it was <laughs> yes. supposed to come out several years ago. Uh, Andy, yeah. do, you know, do you know much about the development of that game? Um, from what happened is the original company that like had uh, Matsuno and uh, Akihiko Yoshida, they went under, and then this other company picked them up, and then like... Uh, Something happened where, like, the, like, Akihiko Yoshida didn't get paid. Oh, no. And then, um, but it is, like, something to do with the old and the new company transferring rights. I don't really know the legal details, but what wound up happening is, like, so now they have to make it not look like Yoshida artwork, and they can't, like, the the artwork that Yoshida sketched up for it won't be used, so it has to look, like, totally different. I feel so bad for whoever Kickstarter. Oh, that sucks. That's like the whole point of that game. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it was Kickstarter like, in 2015. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. The the point being is that all. Yeah, you're right. All the things are like the things you love about these people and the yeah. things they worked on all all together again. I think that was the whole point. Um, but um, it sounded like a Matsuno, like uh, advised them like even after like this uh, big aesthetic change but uh i think he only like gave some advice and he's not like directly involved as far as i can tell he's he ceased involvement with the game uh, I, I think that he was like they wanted him to do an interview on the game's behalf and like it didn't never never happened okay oh, i just remember one detail uh from uh, matsuno's advice is um one of the interesting early ideas for unsung story is um well, a grid-based game, usually, like, you walk on the square, right? That's Western chess. But then in, in Chinese chess, you move on the lines, right? Mm. Yeah. So they were going to have a um, line-based movement system, which uh, oh. so the, the characters stand on points, which gave them, like, more angles of, like, being surrounded or movement. Oh, that's interesting. But, um, but they um, they uh, did not go with that. Like they decided uh, to to go with squares or. They decided that was just too cool and they couldn't do it. But um, but just like the the line from Matsuno was, go with the lines because, like I don't remember his his exact words, but it's pretty much along the lines of, I haven't seen anyone do this, so you should do it. Like, just see what happens. <laughs> um, well, and the concept art for that particular element does look really cool. With the, having on the point, it gives them a kind of a hexagonal uh, flourish around it that does look like it gives a lot of different angles uh, other than just a square. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm making a uh, 
turn-based strategy. And right now, I'm going to uh, taking some notes right now. Like their their problem was something to do with uh, like modeling everything, and like I don't remember ex- the exact details. Yeah, it's probably an issue of like figuring out the the size and the spacing because like um, yeah, even in if you look at Final Fantasy Tactics, any any turn-based games, the the grid is much bigger than you think. Yeah. Oh, actually, um, the thing with Tactics is the grid is way smaller than uh, Tactics Ogre. It's like all of the maps are like maybe like one fourth of the amount of squares, but it it creates more of a um, like if Tactics Ogre. They had some pretty large battlefields where, like, if you're attacking a castle, you see the gate in the center and then, like, the wall. And then you're, like, running across the field. But then in tactics, when you're attacking a castle, you see, like, maybe not even, uh, like, just the gate isn't at the center. It's, like, taking up half of the map. And then there's, like, one turret. And you're already up against the wall. Like, the action is right there. Yeah, it's much more intimate. Um, Yeah. I think part of that was to, like, again, you know, the limitations. You couldn't have too many polygons on screen. Um, yeah. it's It feels more like a intense diorama instead of a uh, actual, like, miniatures tabletop battlefield, which exactly. could get pretty big. It ended up, I think, being artistically a lot more interesting. It looked, instead of, like, two people playing a Warhammer board, it looks like the diorama that they would shoot for a... You know, yeah, yeah. For for the magazine, for for yeah. Like my memory of like moments in tactics and in Vagrant Story, it's like uh, you're one turn right into the action. And actually, yeah, I think that carried over into Vagrant Story, right? The camera is actually pretty focused in on on the action. It's not that far out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Which makes it feel kind of more like a third-person adventure at times, but yeah, you're you're right. It's it's definitely much more zoomed in. I guess yeah. The pacing-wise, it's um when you when you are confronted with something, like your next move will decide like if you get hit or if it if you kill it with like the correct blow or if you have to cautiously you know approach it because it's a new monster and you have no idea what it's weak against. The way I play it is I just kind of like probe things with a crossbow and then like after I kind of get an idea of what it is, then I go like chop it up with a sword. So speaking of the crossbow, uh, going back to one of the things we were talking about with the textures, something that blew my mind a little bit in the opening is, you know, he uh, has the early on interaction where he shoots the guy with the crossbow and you think he's dead. Yeah, that was beautiful. Yeah, and then he has like the arrow sticking out of him and then there's blood on the texture and then he pulls it out. And the blood actually splashes on the ground. Uh, and I was like, oh, man, how did they even do that? Especially with uh, the fact that we were talking about with the scenes, they're always contending with memory because uh, of the full 3D. So I was like, I was pretty impressed by that pretty minute detail. Did did he shove the crossbow through his whole body? I think the bolt goes all the way through, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think he pushed it through instead of pulling it out, right? Sometimes you need to do that. Yeah. And I think it... Like, world-building-wise, it's, you know, that crossbow actually probably brought it to, like, kill an armored person. And so it would just kind of fly through an unarmored guy. Yeah, armor-piercing. Well, and also uh, in that scene that was really impressive is, uh, we haven't talked about the animation yet, but uh, it, when you're dealing with such low polygons, uh, uh, again, Richmond alluded to working on phones, we had to do this a lot, where depending on... The way that you rig the model and the way that it appears in the engine and stuff, uh, often the 
construction of the model was directly related to how easy it was to animate. And the, the models in Vagrant Story are surprisingly well articulated. Like you, they can get a lot of emotion uh, out of what seemed like still like, you know, pretty conservatively um, rigged models. Uh, yeah, I think they, they, they designed for uh, the low poly environment. So um, you don't have anyone with like crazy ornate armor. You have like, don't have that much shoulder armor just because it was really tricky to rig uh, yeah, like the, the joints back then. Um, you just didn't have that much, that many extra polygons to a lot to good uh, joints, right? Kept everyone very svelte. Um, it relied very much on, on the textures. It was very texture reliant. So it explains why a, a lot of characters in the design have kind of uh, shoulder sleeves, but then their, uh, their chest is generally exposed. Yeah, yeah. Could be. Well, if you look at a, a designs across the, the way in terms of even the conceptual designs, where the joints are on the shoulders, even though it isn't always exposed, um, you can tell that the the difference between the shoulder and the vest is usually well articulated in the design. It's either like their muscles or like a nice shoulder armor or... Yeah, it's... I do wonder what that process was like, you know? Like, how did... Did Yoshida have like a pretty intuitive sense of like, well, these are the limitations we have, or like? I think he must have. Yeah, I, I mean, with, with that that much experience, taking it very seriously that they're making their first 3D game, I think he must have immediately started designing with, you know, because you look at Final Fantasy Tactics, like they're very lush characters, right? They they look like. Um, miniatures or like uh you know like uh, his early art is like tarot cards right yeah yeah and then vagrant story had more of like a streamlined kind of comic book look yeah uh i would say vagrant story is like the most uh capcom looking of like yoshida's designs yeah like everyone has uh like big hands and then oh, yeah. they're probably his most muscular set of characters yeah it is yeah like, uh, all of them have cool hands, cool gauntlets, like, uh, I mean, even things so, like those huge, uh, the elbow armor being so big on Ashley, like, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, he's a really oh yeah, those gauntlets are notable. Yeah. Also, one of the only heroes that I can think, uh, that really pulled off being a hero in shorts. Not just yeah. shorts, you, you can see his ass, the, the, the whole game, <laughs> he's a... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and that's not for nothing. Like um, I, I believe uh, Yoshida said in a past interview, he designs his characters ass first. Right? Yeah. It's so the, the <laughs> head and the feet get equal attention when he uh, yeah. designs out of the ass. Yeah, because you're, most you're, people... you're right. Yeah. It actually actually are chaps. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> actually, I, I have a theory of um, Yoshida character design in that uh, the more like. The more they cover up their legs and their crotch, the more that they're hiding something in the story. Mm. Interesting. So in Vagrant Story, we have like Sydney and Romeo Gildenstern are the only two guys wearing something fully covering their legs and their crotch. And they have the most to, to reveal from. Oh, yeah. Sydney's only revealing the top, right? Yeah, that's a pretty notable element of his design, I think. He, he has the most exposure on his chest. Yeah. And torso. But it's superficial, right? <laughs> yeah. 
he's all covered up down there, right? Whereas like Ashley is like literally half covered on top. He looks like he's wearing like Kung Dynasty underwear on top, like he's you know just just covering the chest. And then um, yeah, he's wearing shorts and and chaps, and you can see his butt cheeks. He's like half exposed, which 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 actually <laughs> actually goes with his characterization, right? He's like it's like uh, uh, you're not quite sure if his memories are are real or not, right? That's it's kind of a theme of the game. I, uh, I'm noticing now as we were talking about the limitations as well, and, and Andy, you mentioned uh, Ashley's hair. Uh, they went out of their way to highlight his hair. Like, you know, there's not a lot of polygons, and they used them to make sure that he had hair that would stick up. Yeah, I think, um, well, so, yeah, like Andy mentioned before, Solid Snake has a bandana trailing, right? Uh, I, I think even in. Even in the PS1, didn't he have like a little trail? In any case, I, I think, you know, that's just sort of a good uh, design to have on a character, right? It, it helps the secondary animation emphasizes the character's movement. Um, in Ashley's case, like, you're, you're going to see the character from behind more often than the front. Um, so it makes sense to have that hair dragging behind. This is a case where I think it's the same thing you were saying, where you're you're remembering how great it looked, but yes, and uh, PS1, he did not have the trailing. That wasn't added until Metal oh. Solid 2. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Vagrant Star? Um, yeah, does the hair, like, move at all? Does it animate? The hair, the hair does move. I don't know if it actually animates, but it's definitely got geometry behind it. I'm, I'm just going to look up a video real quick. Does he have secondary animation? Because, yeah, man, you, your mind just fills everything in for, for these, uh, these classic games. Well, we will say you. We were also talking about the silhouettes. Uh, I've seen a couple of screenshots uh, of when they present, uh, especially the male and female characters side by side, and even uh, with you being able to tell that the textures are lower res, the actual way that they rendered the anatomy using so little polygons is still still holds up really well. It's like a really good gesture drawing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yes. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I, I, I think. Part of the reason their low-poly uh, characters look so good, um, you know, before I was saying it's texture-driven, but the the base is so good. And uh, the, the thing with working with such limits is um, you have to be uh, perfect with the contours. And they did such a good job picking exactly where the geometry would flow and break in the contour and add detail. And, yeah, it's it's absolutely like a really good gesture drawing or just a really good under drawing and it's masterful and by the way i don't i don't think his hair moves uh, no secondary animation but you know the character itself is always moving and the, the hair is move it, it's turning in space in interesting ways so it, it adds a lot i mean it now that i'm looking at stuff it's more prominent like if you even look at the cover of vagrant story i mean it, the zigzag of his hair is a very prominent shape yeah Oh, and, you know, he's doing the, um, what do they call it, like the Hawkeye pose? People were like, for a while, people were critical, like, oh, how come Marvel doesn't pose the male characters like the female? And it's like, hey, Ashley Riot, right on the cover, he's showing uh, his chest and his butt. I don't know, maybe it was too spicy for America. Like, they, they kind of put the the logo in front, try to distract you from it, but uh, it's it's all right there, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Just, just going back to the the butt centric design of uh, Yoshida, like all jokes aside, it's a really good way to start making a character. Like, 
because I, I think he also goes into like it tells you so much about the character, right? Like it tells you, you know, if they work or not, right? Does this person toil for a living or not? Like it affects their posture, right? It, it's uh, it, it it reflects who they are, what they've been through, and it is something that you're going to see in a video game, especially a 3D video game. Like you're going to see the back of the character more often than the front. And yet, like, most designs are entirely focused on the front. Like, the back is there, an afterthought. I think it just goes to show you, like, he he's thinking on another level when he approaches uh, character design. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very thoughtful. Uh, there, there's just even more expertise going into, you know, higher-level thinking going into what, what these dudes are doing. Well, now that you mention it, it, it really intuitively actually makes a lot more sense for games, because even in modern games, you're not playing I, I can't think of any games where you're not generally seeing either from the perspective of the character or the back of the character you're not you're not really ever seeing the character unless it's in a cutscene uh, or unless it's being presented that way otherwise like yeah you're always controlling from over the shoulder or behind so uh, it actually seems like something that a lot of people in the industry probably should be doing yeah yeah hey let's talk about um what are sort of the cultural influences on on this game? So um, I, I think the most well-known one is like France, right? You, you can kind of tell from the name, and I, I believe the team even went out to France, do some on-location studies. Yes, the the architecture in the game is based off of Saint Emilion, and they uh, I, I believe Matsuno had them go take multiple trips to study the city. Uh, okay. And there, I think there are certain uh, portions of the game where the the influences are very evident. Like, uh, <laughs> there's a couple of archways that they, they straight up ripped. Oh hey, yeah hey, hey Andy. Oh Sorry, man, did yeah. you were were you logged out for a while? Uh yeah. Oh no. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was wondering why it had you had gone silent for a little bit. That's did cool. you did you hear me talking about uh, butts? Um, that's around when I fell out. Uh, uh, that's. What was the new butt stuff? We had moved on past the butts. <laughs> okay. We were, we were just talking about how how uh, it's actually a very important um, part of character design. And anything to add yeah. there? Well, like, I don't know exactly what Ashley Riot is, is wearing, but, like, uh, you know, um, the crotch used to be more exposed in, in European clothing. <laughs> like, uh, they used to have longer shirts. It's uh, when it became fashionable to wear shorter shirts is when uh, instead of just wearing chaps that like go up the leg but don't cover their crotch underwear, they had to start wearing like things that cover their crotch too. Oh, so they didn't wear full pants? Yeah, they wore... Um... Oh, because everyone had like long tunics, long shirts? Well, I don't know if this applies to everyone. Like trousers have always been around for a while, but uh... yeah. We so we were talking about um, just moving on to the cultural influences on the game. So Sean was talking yeah. about um, you know like France. They visited this French town. Uh, the clothing in the game is not necessarily super French or European. Um, but wait, wait. Let's let's get back to the architecture first. Sean, you were saying that uh, they they had even taken like arches. From, from this uh, town? Yeah, if you look at the one of the churches in Saint Emilion, and if you look at, uh, I, I guess it's not a church, but uh, the the kind of there is a lot of kind of re religious uh, imagery. Like one of the characters is a cardinal, and if you look at, there's a couple shots where they really want you to look at the the buildings they've created, and some of the, like the flying buttresses and the arches are, like I said, they're more or less straight up copied from Saint Emilion, uh, and you know 
translated into a, a low polygon environment, but you can tell uh, if you start looking around in terms of the way that they execute some of the arches and uh, the churches uh, or the church-like kind of architecture that they spent a lot of time uh, realizing this in 3D. It wasn't, you know, just a just a you know an idea. I feel like just traveling there, like it's not just about like oh uh, you know the historic style of whatnot. It's like just capturing the feeling when they're physically there, when they traveled there to like study what they'll put in the game, like just being in front of that building, being in that city, in those old buildings, like it just gave them a certain feeling that they really conveyed in the PlayStation 1. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm looking up uh, photos of Saint Emilion and it's uh, not only reminding me of um, Vagrant Story, also reminding me of uh, my time at, in Lacoste, I, I did a, a study abroad thing for a semester in Lacoste, France, and it, it was also south of France, wine country, old town, 400 years old, like, you know, everything's made out of stone. Um, they really captured that feeling well in, in Vagrant Story. Well, it, it's something that I think blends into people's memory, but if you go back and pay attention to the background when you're playing the game, or even if uh, you're just watching the cutscenes, you'll notice that uh, there's actually not just the the architecture and arches, but uh, the kind of catacomb-style engraving that you would see if you were in an old town like Lacoste or Saint-Emilion is visible on the textures as well. So they, they didn't just spend time making it look old. They wanted it to look storied. I, I think the... There was yeah. an idea also that there was that, that um, these characters are existing in kind of an archaic time, and they really wanted to lean into the the kind of I don't know if artistry is quite the right word, but if you the more you look at the background, the more you'll see that the level of detail and the texture is very interested in reflecting this kind of careful uh, older architecture. Yeah, it's um, like uh, in Vagrant Story, uh, their times um, like. Leomond is the the city that was destroyed in an earthquake, and so it was already like archaic to them as modern people in their own world. So like there's layers of eras like just packed into the level design. Because at uh, the very beginning of the game, you see the people in like their their modern capital, their modern government building, and it feels like you know like something that you might see in like a capital city today. Yeah, like colonial style, like stuff yeah, that's yeah. still contemporary like, now. So, uh, not not talking about architecture at all, but something that I also picked up on a lot, uh, especially if you look at Final Fantasy Tactics into this, is the way that they deliver speech is a little bit related to this. I uh, I read uh, something interesting about uh, this isn't about the art, but it's about uh, Alexander O. Smith, the uh, one of the most storied uh, translators and localizers of uh, Square Games. Uh, there was a, I don't know if it was an interview, but I was reading uh, about how the architecture and the existence of like where Leomanda is also influenced him changing the translation in the English to be a bit more like Shakespearean in nature. Uh, he, he wanted it to have a bit more biblical tone and he wanted it to feel more rooted in the kind of uh, culture that was coming up from that. And uh, if you side by side what the actual translations would be, you can see that he, he really didn't just do a translation job. He you know, took a very, very thoughtful interest in telling the story uh, through that tone. And uh, the way that they execute kind of the comic book style 
bubbles actually works really well in terms of uh, landing the tone. So I, I thought that yeah. was kind of very interesting. Yeah, like, uh, I mean, was there uh, many other games really doing that kind of speech bubble? Uh, the only one I've seen is, like, if you look at Final Fantasy Tactics, they, they did it. But yeah, you're, you're right. Like, usually it was just a box of text. Like, yeah. even, even in Xenogears, it's just a box of texts. Yeah. Um, well, I guess it's, I mean, with that game, it's, with Vagrant Story, it's like everything's 3D and they're very carefully placing all of their shots. Like, uh, and the interview with Kojima and Matsuno, Matsuno talks like, after they mention like cinema, like their cinema genes, like Matsuno also talks about like, uh, you know, manga genes. Nice. Did he, did he talk about the, his influences there? Um, I think it was more uh, just in general, like, oh, in addition to cinema, like this art of uh, video games, like we're drawing from everything before it. And then um, Kojima said something really, it sounds funny, but it's also really insightful. He says, you know, uh, this is 1999, he said, this is the last year of elementary school for G- uh, for video games. We're going into middle school, but none of us really know what we're supposed to learn in middle school. Man, that's, that's pretty spot on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the PS1 era, um, everything before that, that, that it was just wild, wildly creative, so many different things, right? And then PS2 era is kind of where everything gets cemented. Like, uh, again, uh, wonderful games from that era. Um, a lot of those games are, are, are very much games as we understand them now, whereas uh, PS1 era is very... I, I do think what you're saying is true as well, which is it was on the cusp of... I think PS1 to PS2 was the first time where you have uh, the limitations being much less um, aggressive, by which I mean, uh, when you hear, especially later stage PlayStation 1 games, most developers will talk about that the memory limitations were still pretty difficult. Uh, And it's not that PS2 didn't have its own difficulties, but the leap, and this is where you start seeing uh, a trend that happens in modern games, which is the leap between generational consoles in terms of the amount of resources and limitations are, they're not incremental changes. They're pretty large updates between the ability of the hardware to do things. So it, it almost is this case where I feel like the, the creativity required to work within the limitations of PlayStation 1 bled into PlayStation 2. And then as you start getting into the PlayStation 3 era, uh, we're getting to the point where game designers and developers have a lot more resources to work with, so they're not as constrained by the limitations of the platform. Yeah, but I, I think philosophically, like if if we continue with this metaphor, then PS2 era is like middle school, PS3 era is like high school, right? Like you have a lot more resources, but um, that was an era where what people accepted became much more narrow. Right? There, there was an era where people were like, oh, well, RPGs are like this, right? Like turn-based is in fact uh, bad, and real-time is good, and um, linear is bad, and uh, open world is good, right? It, it became very dramatic yeah. for a while. It's, uh, yeah, I guess everyone was trying to think what is the proper way of doing something. Yeah. It's also like the way Kojima's counting, like uh, Metal Gear begins in 87, so... Like, if we just look at it super simply, like, 
he started his career then, so now he's in the sixth grade of his career. Yeah, I think that's what he meant, actually. <laughs> I think that's a better explanation. Okay, uh, getting back to Vagrant's story, sort of at the tail end of the 32-bit era, on the cusp of the 128-bit era. Um, gosh, what a beautiful game. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts on the art influences on the game? Like... Um, like, what is Ashley Riot really wearing? Like, what? Yeah. I'm looking at that right now, and um, the closest thing I found is like, you know, like what what Chinese babies wear. But yeah, uh, but it's um, it's actually a kind of uh, you know the the fundoshi. Like, nice. there is a kind of fundoshi style, the traditional Japanese uh, loincloth, where like you have that. Uh, instead of just like wrap, like going under your legs and like having it hang like between your legs you you have a part that's like a an apron like you hang it over your torso and it covers like it's a square just over your torso mm. like it's the closest thing i've seen to it do, do you think i mean I, I feel like there's like uh maybe some asian influences like sort of that the the, the shirtless the combo of shirtless but like sort of like hard stuff laid on top and then like long pants or shorts that seems very i don't know like vedic more or like like indian epics like the rig veda or like Balinese well, art because i mean in vagrant story like they find that the uh the medieval france looking uh surface architecture of the city is uh just the surface layer and there's a deeper layer that looks like you know, more like Hindu, more Bali temple. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt like the deeper you go, it, it seems more like South Asian, right? Like, um, and, yeah. and I, I, there's a direct Bali reference in the game. Um, some of the battle music uses uh, Balinese chanting. By the Kijak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah. You've seen that before, Yeah, right? I've seen it in person. And, like, uh, the opening of Vagrant Story, when you hear that, like, I can't make that sound. With I can't do it mouth. either. It's just like... But it's, you just hear it. Yeah, yeah. The first it's, time I heard uh, it, I thought it was editing. I, I thought it was like some sort of like weird modern mixing, right? I, I didn't realize this is like something a bunch of people can just do vocally, like... Yeah. Live. The origin of that kind of chanting, it, it comes from like a... It's like a possession ritual for a warrior. And that's actually kind of getting into Ashley Riot's story of like he's just this cold professional killer that just does his job. So it's like he's in his trance to go kill things until <laughs> his uh, humanity slowly popping out. Man, I, I, I need to replay this. <laughs> it's a good thing well, I have even, it on the PS3. Uh, like, you know, now we have the internet, we can look up everything and we can, like, chat with people around the world for, like, information. But, you know, like, this is year 2000, Yoshida's got a... He designed, actually, like, the title art. He's using, like, uh, like a curved, heavy chopping sword. It's, uh... Yeah, it's not very, European, right? Well, no, it is European. Oh, it is, um, it is. It's like you see, like, uh, Archangel Michael wield swords like that to chop up, like, a crocodile-looking dragon. Whoa. It's, um, it's just, it's not like, uh, what, what were those guys called? The Raphaelites? The Raphaelites? 
Yeah, like you know that Arthurian like uh, yeah, you know, like the romantic Yeah, like like uh I feel that's around the time when like the cruciform sword was like the only European sword and then like the curved swords disappeared and they only show up in the hands of like Tolkien orcs. Oh, okay. Um so Yoshida was like really digging into things that are like uh you know they weren't in any movies recently like they would have to be like historic paintings or just like even older like popular artwork do you, do you remember the 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 cg intro to the game yeah with the dancer there's a dancer um it was like a belly dancer right yeah she's uh the saint that the um the city was dedicated to Hmm. So in the vagrant story world, like it's not a direct analogy to like any specific like European city or historic event. It's like uh, so their legend is like you know it's more like Hindu-looking people were the ones that like built the first layer of the city and like that that saint like brought her magic with her and then oh and then the ter- the the uh, the terms they use for the spirits that destroyed the city it's like uh it's like the names of like the islamic jinn that are associated with uh earth and water like a, a marid and um and something else yeah 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 there, there's definitely an arabic influence in the game too i mean like straight up in the intro it's telling you right yeah, um, yeah and then um it, isn't it the same world as as uh, final fantasy Tactics and 12? Yes, it is. One of the Fall Fantasy big information books, the Ultimanians, I think they make a Evalis timeline. And um, I think Fall Fantasy 12 is set furthest in the past. And then I forget uh, if Tactics or Vagrant Story takes place further in the future. Okay. I do know there's a, a, a Valence... Um, <clears throat> raid storyline uh, in Final Fantasy XIV in Stormblood yeah, that yeah. Uh, that uh, Masuno actually returns to uh, to design a lot of the uh, overall encounters and I uh, <clears throat> in uh, in researching Valence in w- whether or not it's actually in other Final Fantasy games I came across the fact that uh, the boss designs in that encounter are designed by uh, I'm going to mispronounce it but the the director of uh, the the garo tv series um kita amamiya amamiya yes thank yeah. you uh and i i feel like uh that is like you said 12 like the they they kind of poke at it with like leia monday being mentioned and risk breakers come up in a number of contexts in final fantasy so they really yeah. didn't highlight that it takes place in in the final fantasy universe but it definitely is intended to yeah yeah um it's no the the references in fourteen are, are really fun. Like it's, I think it's kind of like how um, Gundam has a bunch of different universes, but there's like shared words and shared ideas. And then like fourteen is is kind of like Kingdom Hearts with only Final Fantasy. So mm. like it's not like one true canon, but it is very satisfying when you're familiar with everything. So the way they make the references in Final Fantasy XIV is um, the invading empire you're fighting, the Garleans, like, uh, Ivalis is one of their legends. And, like, people, like, um, you meet, like, uh, some neutral 
or some civilian Garleans that are actually trying to, uh, they're protesting the war, but like they lost a lot of political power. And then one of you, one of them's explaining a Garlean legend to you about like, oh, you know, there's uh, the heroes of, uh, what do you call it? the The term from Final Fantasy Tactics for the, the Zodiac Brave story is like, oh yeah, we have Zodiac Braves from across time, like such as like the great King Delita or Ashley the Assassin. It's like, oh, it's just cool to hear both of them like in one line. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, okay, going back to that intro with the, the belly dancing goddess, the term belly dance is a translation from English from a French term dance to I, I can't pronounce French but it, it means belly dance and that was yeah. only coined in 1864 uh, as a snide nickname for an orientalist painting and orientalism was you know this this sort of the, the westerners going to the, the the Middle East but they, they called it the Orient um, and and you know yeah. cataloging the culture there so like right there <laughs> in the intro it, it's tying it all together right like the Arabic influence the, the French connection uh, yeah, it's th these games are very, they're informed by multiple cultures. Like, I think a lot of times people assume that it's only Western fantasy, and it's like, no, like, all, all the Squaresoft stuff is very, very multicultural. Like, they, they really dug deep into world culture and history and mythology for, for their games, especially in pre-internet times. They, they, they went deep. I yeah. often, I also wondered if uh, the inclusion of a character like Guildenstern was meant to reference Shakespeare or Hamlet. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Oh, it's yeah. for sure, yeah. yeah. I don't know enough about Shakespeare to really say what, but um, there is a scene where when he appears, like, there's a fisheye lens, and I think, like, they just built a, a fisheye, like, model of that area just for that one shot. Oh yeah, probably. Yeah. Actually, I'm remembering there is also a Rosencrantz character in Vagrant Story, isn't there? Oh, is there? Guildenstern uh, and Rosencrantz. Are. Rosencrantz yeah. is like one of the minions in the intro, I think. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the Hamlet references is obvious then. <laughs> oh, dude, his name's Romeo Guildenstern. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> really, I didn't remember that. I just remembered the oh. character's name. No, he's um. His nickname is the Lady Killer. Okay, wait. Jan Rosencrantz is a he's like an inquisitor kind of character that shows up like at another point in the game. He's uh I don't remember exactly, but just his introduction, like is he also a risk breaker or Yeah, yeah, only... he claims to be a risk breaker too and he is dressed kind of similarly, but like instead of wearing shorts, he's got like tights and then long boots that create a similar silhouette to the shorts oh i i want to say real quick um talking about like uh sydney right one of the main antagonists of vagrant story uh yeah sydney was uh like bare chest and then like you said the 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 covered legs the tight tight leather with the the weird like metal straps on top and the the, the sort of skirt around it um i think for me just intuitively my gut is telling me that specific designs very much influenced by the work of uh, Yasushi Nirasawa, um, who did the legendary uh, Creature Core art book, uh, and, you know, frequent collaborator with Kida Mamiya and um, 
and uh, Takeyuki Takeya, Katsuya Tirada, part of that crew. But um, Nirasawa uh, really, like, he sort of took the Hellraiser aesthetic and, like, really ran with it. So when you see stuff like, uh, you know, like stuff that looks like, like, like the pointy top of a gate, like a, a metal gate, but it's like wrapped around the character. Um, that's something you, you start seeing in Nomura designs around this era, too. Um, that's very much from Yasushi Nirasawa. Like he's super, super influential. Really, he's one of the most low-key influential artists. He, he worked on the Final Fantasy uh, movie as well. Uh, which which they would have been working on in, in 2000. Um, yeah, all these amazing artists working together. Need to give more. Yeah, I, like just looking up their clothing is, is so fun. Okay, so um, yeah, the, the, the two people we've been talking about so much tonight, uh, Yasumi Matsuno, he's the, the writer, director, and producer of Vagrant Story. Um, and then Akiko Yoshida, the, the main character designer. Um, was he the art director as well? Uh, he's pretty much credited with the I overall. I don't believe he was the art director, but I, still his style drove quite a lot of it. Uh, background art director and character designer. Yeah. So, oh wow. So he had a hand in the environments too. Yeah, you always hear about him regarding character design, not as much for his. Does that mean like uh, did Yoshida like do the levels in like Tactics Ogre? Yes, he was also the background art director on Tactics Ogre. Okay. Uh, and the two of them, I think they started working together on Ogre Battle, March of the Black Queen in 95. So that, that, that would have been for uh, a company called Quest for the Super Nintendo, Super Famicom. Oh my gosh, so Vagrant Story was only five years after that. Jeez. It's my, I, I feel like... How can Time I, is that flowed so fast. To go in five years from Super Nintendo to like the most beautiful 3D game of the era. Yeah, that's <laughs> pretty. It feels like it, 50 years. It does. So uh, I wanted to mention, yeah, it was Hiroshi Minagawa is also the art director there, and I think he's uh, one of the more low-key uh, people that always works with uh, those two as well. Like, oh, really? Uh, he worked on, on Tactics Ogre, Final Fantasy Tactics. Uh, fun fact, he is he is and was the lead UI designer on uh, A Realm Reborn and uh, Heaven's Word for Final Fantasy XIV. Oh, wow. wow. Oh, the UI designer. Yeah, fourteen uh, has very pleasant UI. That's really cool. That um, Yeah, so, I mean, it's really neat that the, this team has been able to stick together for so long, and they, they've remained... You know, at the head of their fields, right? Like, like uh, we we talked before, Matsuno. Um, he so he started off doing the ogre battle games. Uh, I, I think uh, after that, he started. Yeah, he went directly to Square Enix um, after doing ogre battle, March of the Black Queen, and then Tactics Ogre uh, for the SNES. Right, he went to Square and did Final Fantasy Tactics, and then Vagrant Story with his team. Um, and then he was the director on Final Fantasy XII. Uh, he, was, he came up with the original concept. He was the writer, the director, um, which also means, yeah, like th that game, Ibilis, so he, he started forming the backstory in more detail there later. Um, and then he had to step down from that uh, due, due to illness. Um, I think it's actually 
in the Western fandom, they all often say like, "Oh, he stepped down because uh, he didn't like where the game was going," or blah blah blah. Um, that's actually pretty unsubstantiated. Uh, that, that's something that a lot of fans have like just ran with. Um, I think he. Ready for which game? Uh, Final Fantasy XII, because I, I think at the time, if you'll recall, like the game, fans were were pretty split on it. A lot of people just didn't like how many breaks it took from uh, the regular direction of the series, and I don't know, it, it kind of had a bad reputation for a while. And um, a lot of times, stuff in American fandom, they take like little snippets of news and they run away with it. Well, people it's, uh, <laughs> drama. Yeah, they like the so drama. You want to hear drama. Or gossip. It's, it's fair to say that I think the era of Final Fantasy XI up until more recent 14 is, has the most divided kind of reactions to Final Fantasy games. Like, I think most people agree that it was, you know, this, this series was pretty solid and generally well loved up until about 10. And then you had kind of hit and miss between 11 to 14. And we talked about their early attempts at MMOs. Yeah not going as well. Yeah. And I think 12 was like squarely in the middle of that pack. Yeah. But um, 12 is now getting a second lease on life with the uh, the remaster. A lot of people are rediscovering it. Um, I think it yeah. sold quite well. I think the remaster might have sold over a million. And, um, yeah. yeah, yeah again, um, like, the Fall Fantasy 14, uh, the return to Uvalis part of Fall Fantasy 14 is also... Like a return to Fall Fantasy twelve. A lot of the same names, same places come up. If you yeah. if you uh, side by side or at least look uh, at Vagrant Story and then Final Fantasy twelve, both character design and architecture side by side, you can really tell that it's the same team that worked on it. You can see a lot of influences from it. Yeah, totally. It's like wow, now Ashley Riot's clothing goes on a sexy bunny girl. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know. Um, yeah, we were talking about this before. 12 is the last Final Fantasy where it's really uh, texture-driven, right? It's not... Um, yeah. If you just took out all the lighting, it just unlit textures, the game would look amazing still, right? Like, it, it was the last one with that really nice painterly um, look that the, the PS2 era especially did did so well. And that was a direct outgrowth of Vagrant's story, really, their experience there. I would love to see that style come back. Yeah, like, I feel that's the kind of aesthetic where I just enjoy, like, walking around, not really particularly doing anything. So fun to look at. Like, 14 is a nice-looking game, but a lot of the environments don't have the same warmth as this, you know, hand-painted Vagrant Story dungeon or, like, a Fall Fantasy XII just walking down a market. Yeah, it's... um. It evokes the feeling of life. It is not super literal, uh, so it it somehow feels more complete for for me, because you it's it's not trying to be photo real. So you you're not your brain isn't constantly critiquing like anything that's lacking. You, you just for me it's like yeah, I can accept this. Uh, you know, kind of reminds me. We used to talk about this a lot when we were working, right, Richmond? And uh, we used to bring up games like Silent Hill as an example as well, where I think it has to do with it's not just that these are great artists, it's that by forcing you to think about the lighting and by thinking about how that is and then actually have to bake it into the texture when you you kind of don't, like, because early on I think it's kind of, oh, you're relying on the lighting engine or you're relying on uh, the material generator to kind of figure out stuff. But when they didn't have yeah. that, it's 
once you strip that away or once it gets sufficiently more complicated and mentally we can tell that the lighting engine is as complicated, that's what causes games to look dated. But in this case, they just didn't have the luxury of not having to think about the detail. And I think it it's like the, you know, you ever talk about the difference between why tracing is not a good way to learn. It's because like you're, you're, you know, you're not learning to draw the object, you're learning to draw a picture of the object. And I think this is a similar thing, which is, uh, remember uh, Richmond, uh, I'm blanking on which class, but you know, they used to teach, you literally would build up maquettes from the, the, the muscles and then layer on the top of it. Uh, oh, yeah, so yeah. you would actually learn the form. Yeah, Paul Hudson's human uh, figure, like anatomy class. Yeah, I think like drawing the figure. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah. So I, th I think the the subtle that that subtle idea is is really important of fundamentally understanding the the place in the environment that the object or the person or the muscles take. It sounds really really subtle, but I think it actually really shows through because they had to make sure that the texture reflected it because the model just wasn't doing the work for them and there wasn't a lighting uh. engine or a material engine. So that's why I, that, that's my theory as to why this holds up so well is that the the actual understanding and artistry is literally baked into the model. You, you, it doesn't go away with time or it doesn't go away as the lighting engine or, yeah. or the material uh, generators get better. The lighting engine is the human mind. <laughs> that's... That's why it looks so good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, okay. I just want to uh, finish summing up uh, Matsuno's. Uh, oh, how do you say over? Over, that French word O E U V R E. His body of work. Um, okay. So so after Final Fantasy XII, he stepped down uh, from Square Enix. He went freelance. He was the writer on Mad World, um, which, if you'll recall, that was the uh, one of the early platinum games for the Wii, Nintendo Wii, and it was super oh, it was such violent. a fun game. That had beautiful black and white art direction, just pure black and white comic book shading, kind of like like Frank Miller by way of like uh, Koike, um, the animator, and 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 it had a great story. Um, I think it's actually one of the best written games. It, I I'm not gonna go into it now, but like that game was. An amazing allegory for the state of games at that time. Like, oh man, okay, I, okay, but let's keep going. Um, after that, he did. Uh, it worked on Terra Battle for Mistwalker, so he reunited with uh, Hironobu Sakaguchi at his new company. Um, and then, you know, like you guys were saying, he, he came back to Square Enix for the return to Ivalis for uh, Final Fantasy XV. Yeah, so it's kind of cool that he, he went back to, to Square after all these years. Um, and on that title that, that is so meaningful to longtime fans of uh, Final Fantasy with all the history uh, in it. Um, and I believe the current game that he is working on is a Platinum Games title? Right? Yes, um, yes. Uh, so, so, yeah, so after 15, there was the debacle with Un Unsung Story, which pretty much doesn't count, like, you know. And then Lost Order is the game he's currently developing at a, uh, Platinum, being published by Side Games. Um, I believe it's a mobile RPG. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, I would say if uh, if you're listening and you are a fan of these 2000 1998 era RPGs, look no further than Platinum Games, as many of the people that worked on those games have ended up there. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And going back to um, Yoshida, right? So he he worked together with with uh, Matsuno on the Ogre Battle games, on t- Tactics Ogre, Final Fantasy Tactics, Vagrant Story, all the so many tactics. My gosh. <laughs> all the tactics games and then he became pretty much the new face of final fantasy for a good while right after yeah after so after like six it was nomura right and then um Mm -hmm. there was a brief kind of you know like nine was seven and eight were nomura nine was uh more of a return to a more classic style but it wasn't I know people credit Amano for it, but like it, that game had a different look. And then ten was Nomura, eleven, not sure actually, but uh, twelve. I uh, think uh, modern sure. days, you're you're definitely right. I mean, he was he's definitely been the lead uh, character artist on Final Fantasy fourteen yeah. through all of its yeah, iterations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's been the art director on fourteen, and also uh, the main character designer on. Uh, Bravely Default, which again is was their their sort of nod to their uh, classic classic era. Yeah. When I when I learned about that, it, it made so much sense. But I it was one of those things where you you didn't realize why you like something until you hear a detail. And I was like, oh, this makes so much sense. Why I like Bravely Default so much. Yeah. Final Fantasy Nine was uh, Hideo Miraba, who is uh, who also does a uh, crimson shroud with level five like oh, okay. the the thing the art that looks like similar to yoshida's like in uh you know archaic sealed heat like that's uh hideo minaba okay and in crimson crimson shroud was uh, directed by matsuno right yeah and now he's doing grand blue like which is oh you he's know, the grand blue artist yeah okay like, uh, i was always like oh that looks, looks a lot like yoshida but for yeah. me, not, not quite as cool. What's, what's also interesting, aside of mentioning yeah. Platinum Games, um, <clears throat> he was also the lead character designer on Nier Automata. Yes. Yeah. That's that's a huge one. That's. Uh, it's it's like the... he took a quick freelance break from Final Fantasy to to help out his his old pals at Platinum. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then that just that sort of like that with Persona was like, hey, like people like. Japanese RPGs again, you know, really, really yeah. shifted I, the uh, uh, momentum on that. I I wonder if Yoshida did this subconsciously or on purpose, but like Nier Automata's 2B is like wearing the reverse clothing of Ashley Riot. My God. Like 2B has a boob window and sleeves. Ashley only covers his nipples. My God. Like 2B <laughs> like pushes the camera if you're trying to look at her butt. Like Ashley just shows you his butt. And then he wears shorts. Well, 2B has exposed thighs, but wears high thigh, like, uh, yeah, high heel thigh <laughs> boots. I will say, if you look at Final Fantasy XII, uh, that definitely was the time when he fell in love with thigh-high boots, because there are a number of characters where it's pretty instrumental to their design. That Yeah, like um, the, the Viera, the bunny girls. Like he, he was really looking at like rabbit feet and high heels to design heels for humanoids with rabbit feet. Aren't, uh, aren't real-life Dragoon boots quite high? High heels uh, show up in a military purpose, so when you're riding a horse, like, it protects your legs from just scraping into bushes and whatever, but the heel part, 
um, it's so like it hooks kind of like slots into the stirrup in a way, so you oh, don't get okay. like uh, loose or fall loose out of it. Okay. But like, yeah, the thigh high boots are for like real life historic, like you know, Napoleonic dragoons and so on, because mm. they need something to cover their legs while rapidly riding a horse. Okay. It might come from hunting, and then I'm not really sure if like Asian horse riding boots also have a heel or not. I haven't really looked. Because yeah. Yeah, the Asian stirrups, they tend to be more like a cup that like the toes fit into, but which also means like if you have it made out of iron, like you can just kick someone with the horse of a horse oh, as you nice. ride by them. Yeah. So the steel toes. Yeah, but that was the stirrup. Like instead of your your boot sticking out of the stirrup in a hole, it's like it's a cup that your foot is in. I don't know the technical terms, but okay, so the, those are descriptive. The weight is on the front of your your, your feet in the in the stirrup. On the uh, are the soles the front or is that the whole bottom? I think it's just the whole bottom of your feet. Uh, another parallel between actually near and uh, vagrant that I noticed is the. The concepts are uh, and the kind of the direction feel very. Uh, people would call them monotone. They have a lot of uh, color. It, like Nier uses a lot of blues and grays. Uh, oh, Vagrant yeah. uses a lot of blues and browns. But in reality, like you would expect that the game is brown, but it actually has a lot of really intentional use of color. I mean, it's still a muted tone, but uh, that's also something that I think is pretty unique about uh, Vagrant Story that. Uh, was different uh, from, like, say, Xenogears, which was much more anime style and colorful. Of yeah. The time. Yeah, I think um, it, it recalled, like, uh, like I, I, I think Yoshida's always been inspired by, like, tarot cards, illuminated manuscripts, and Andy, I think you pointed out, like, sword manuals, right? Early sword manuals? The martial arts books of, like, medieval Europe, uh, they're kind of proportioned, like, uh, like vagrant story characters, like large hands, so you can just they're emphasizing like you know what the student needs to see, but it's also just a a fun way to draw like big swords, big hands. Yeah, near automata, like it's they made like the brown pigs and the brown moose like so alive in their brownness. Mm. <laughs> like yeah, that's me. usually a dullish color, but like. Just the, the choice of everything, because the the androids are all like you know black, like 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 well manicured dolls, and then the the machines are all like you know like like a rusting '80s car. Like both of them are very like human, man-made looking, feeling things, and then you have an actual boar that's all chubby and brown, and it's like a reddish brown. Yeah, it's very deliberate. Yeah, it's, it's, you can achieve these things when you're when you're very very deliberate about how how you're building your game and your your story and your art direction. Yes, they're focused like ruins and overgrown environment like kind of uh, made the color choices more striking. Because I guess uh, like say Final Fantasy fourteen, it's it's an MMO, so you need like here's a desert, here's a jungle, here's a forest here's a medieval castle, here's a festival, like, you have to just do so many different things to build that MMO world. But um, there's actually the latest expansion of 14, uh, Shadowbringers, like, it's actually a setting where most of the world is 
destroyed by these like angel beings that feel like they came from the bastard manga. So oh. most of the world is bleached out. Like, uh, and that actually makes uh, the vibrant parts of the world even more vibrant. Yeah, so like there's an eternal sunlight sky, like most everything is covered in sunlight, like some places are dried up. And mm. then it makes, uh, you know, the color of a tree stand out more, just subtly. Wasn't the, the idea there for them to kind of turn around the idea of, you know, n not a warrior of light, but the idea of angels and light beings in terms of uh, what is yeah. good and bad? Yeah, right, because um, they had some previous story arcs where, like, you know, you had to fight, like, beings of darkness or, like, a demonic, like, darkness invasion shows up. Their concept of angels was really neat in that uh, they're just... Uh, well, in Final Fantasy XIV, the, the physics of their world is based on elemental energy. And if anything skews towards one energy too much, then it just causes a, like, widespread death and stagnation. So, like, fire energy dominates, then there'll be, like, exploding volcanoes and lots of, like, things on fire. But with light energy... They chose if it dominates, it just kind of bleaches everything into, like, it's dead. They're all, like, spiritual beings that need to feed on energy. So then when you create a bunch of, like, fire monsters or light monsters, they're going to go seek out ether inside of people to eat them. And then they can turn them into a new, like, light monster by seeding it inside of them. I, I need to get through all the stories... So that I can play all the the goodness of Final Fantasy XIV to offer. Well, I tell you, it's 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 worth it. Like it's just really really fun. Uh, I fourteen is like at this point with its third expansion, it feels like I've already played like Final Fantasy sixteen and seventeen. Like they're very <laughs> complete stories. You're, um, yeah, you're just talking about uh, sort of flipping this the imagery around, right? Like having the, the typically it's the good guys, the holy empire with a white theme and like uh, you know light colors and yeah. darkness is associated with antagonism. Yeah, they um, oh they didn't do it like a holy inquisition type thing either. Like uh, the excess of light energy is uh, it's. It's just, like, sloth and gluttony. Okay. Like, uh, that's when they introduce, for the first time, like, overweight characters. Like, not, not character models, but, like, NPC models. Hmm. Like, you see some people got really fat because they're just inside of, like, the last city all day. Not really. They gave up on trying to fight. They're just going to have fun, eat, sleep. And just like let the world die. Okay. But isn't the the idea that they're you're definitely flipping around what you would characteristically understand as good and bad? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, have, yeah. I obviously haven't played it yet, but the tone from the the promotional stuff seems to be like we're going to be be good angels of light, and we're going to save you if forced by necessary. You know, if necessary. Yeah. Oh, I can't say too much because it's they just yeah it's. It's just done anyway, really can, uh, good. <laughs> we can okay. talk about it a different time. We should yeah, uh, yeah. return to Vagrant Story. Yeah, sure. I'll just drop one bit of film trivia in there. Um, so that description of you know the the 
the flipping it so that the the bad guys are themed as like white and holy and the the good guys are you know like wearing black and like rough uh well not necessarily final fantasy but there's an old film called alexander nevsky it's the old russian film and it's um you know it's about like how the in the olden days when uh these yeah, when the Russians fought off the Holy Roman Empire, so so it's got really striking imagery of like, you know, these dudes look like they're straight out of like a glorious uh, uh, Catholic painting, right? Like, you know, Saint George slaying a dragon or something. But but they're the bad guys, and the guys wearing like the dark uh, armor are are the good guys. And it's 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 from the '60s too. It's black and white. It's very uh, it's very striking. There's there's like a battle on a frozen lake. It's it's really cool. Uh, Alexander oh, yeah. Nevsky you should look it up. Okay, I, um, I'll have to to watch that. Yeah, but uh, okay, okay. Going back to Vagrant Story, I think. Um, well, it's getting... yeah, even with uh, the Ashley Riot design, like uh, he is dressed more like some kind of like orc, like you know, it's half clothing with a curved sword, uh, like that wasn't normal in 2000 for D&D fantasy. Yeah, the protagonist yeah. would be like, you know, plate armor or like a big Nordic barbarian or like all leathered up as like a Batman. Cool. Can we also appreciate what a great name Ashley Riot is? Even, yeah. even just saying it is fun. Yeah. yeah. All of their names are awesome. Romeo Gildenstern. Okay. Um, any, any last thoughts on the game? I'd say, oh, um... Yeah, one trivia piece I heard is, uh, like, Vagrant Story has a really gigantic, like, crafting system for weapons. Like, I don't fully comprehend it, but it's like a massive, like, pyramid. Weapons, I, like, do you fuse weapons, or do you look for material, I forget? I just remember there's, like, a lot of different things you could turn your sword or your spear into. Uh, yeah, I, I don't actually remember the crafting exact mechanic very well. But it's it's really massive, and like someone asked like Matsuno, like, so did you use like a spreadsheet for this? Like, you know, you put in some numbers and then get like X amount of like, you know, uh, weapon variety. He's like, oh no, like he responded, he just he just kind of wrote everything on like paper, did it by hand to just make like a hundred different weapons. He really likes working uh, by hand. Well, it's like all of the stats and the numbers and the variety wasn't done by, like, just, uh, you know, making, like, if we have X weapon, then we would have Y weapon for variety. He just made all of them different, just based on his feelings and, I guess, his experience. So, like, kind of the like the way that, you know, they did the lighting tricks by just having a brighter model stand behind it. Like, it was very much like a handcrafted game. Like, yeah. the computer was to serve the human mind. Yeah. My, my uh, kind of final thought on it is that just to remind people if they're going back to play it, because I'm definitely, start, I actually started playing it again uh, a few days ago when we were going to talk about it from the uh, the anniversary. But this, what's interesting about this game is it's a it's a very thoughtful game and it really invests in that even like the we're kind of talking about the way that the game works but you really have to take your time and understand the game 
Uh, and it's also not a particularly, I wouldn't say it's like a Final Fantasy game in that it's not a brisk moving epic story. It's a very intimate contained story, uh, but the it's the same kind of thing that I think is happening a lot nowadays where people are telling a character story really well. Uh, and then overall, it doesn't need to be part of some larger epic in order for it to be effective. And I think that's even where the, where even though it takes place in a Final Fantasy adjacent or tactics universe, they, they decided not to highlight that at all. They just, you know, they talked about, uh, you know, calling it Vagrant Story. I believe there was some reference in terms of the Vagrant being a, a type of agent. I, I know it wasn't the, the classical uh, what you expect Vagrant to mean. It's uh, a, a type of... Uh, so a type of agent that you know affects many things, I believe, is where the the meaning comes from. But anyway, it's just the I think the thoughtfulness of the game still stands up really well. I think it's a great experience to invest in. Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, Matsuno said in an interview when when writing the story, um, he said that they weren't thinking of making a big Hollywood movie, um, but rather a two-hour Tuesday evening suspense drama. So you know, like a more like sedate, more like intimate uh, kind of story, and I, I think they really succeeded in that. That's uh, one of the that's, things that makes it unique. And that's like uh, that is like the main competition for the big movie experience now to watch your favorite drama on Netflix. Wait, what do you, what do you mean? When you're saying that in the 1999, you have to you know tune in on Tuesday to go watch your your drama, but now. There's all these streaming services, so that kind of drama, you can just watch it whenever you want. Yeah, uh, yeah. I guess that's 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 especially relevant to now. I think. Um, yeah. Because th- this game was created at a time before like budgets ballooned into like the the tens of millions, and now like the hundreds of millions. And yeah, like the environment right now is like uh, Disney pretty much owns the box office. Everything has to be a blockbuster. Uh, video games have gone through similar thing but then yeah as we mentioned in other podcasts like you have all these interesting indie games pop up too um and i think uh yeah i i would say that's sort of the attitude that i would have towards vagrant story like if you were going to go back and play that like um don't expect it to be like a a final fantasy it's it's more of like uh it's 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 like discovering a lost gem right it's um it's not one of the big splashy iconic PS1 games. Uh, unfortunately, it's not. It's over time. It's it's it, at the time it was a big deal, but now it's um, you know, kind of kind of this uh, this lost treasure. So yeah, if if you go back into it, just um, well, I think the idea that uh, Mitsuno and Kojima had met at a, a theater uh, is relevant to, um, and I might be repeating some sort of what you were saying before. To yeah. a degree, but I do recall him specifically talking about how it's meant to be like a, a film that you would see at an independent theater uh, with a, a small group of people and not meant to be a Holly, you know, air quotes yeah. Hollywood blockbuster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's an intimate experience. Like, give, give it the uh, thought and attention that it deserves, and and give yourself the time uh, to to drink it all in. Yeah. It is Same. also one of the early Square games to have a new game plus. Oh, really? Okay, I, I first remember that from Chrono Trigger. Yeah, that, yeah, that was that, that popped up again in a lot of their PS1 era again. 
guess the last thing I would say is Vagrant Story. Yeah, it's just a really great experience. And the Yoshida designs in it is like when I, you know, it made me think like, man, like, what is Ashley Riot wearing? Like, I can't <laughs> tell. I need to find out. I need to, like, go to the library and start researching. Yeah, yeah it's pretty out there. All right, let's uh, let's wrap stuff up. It's, um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a good good place to end it. Um, yeah, it's a wonderful game. Uh, thank you, uh, Sean, Andy. Thanks for taking the time to to have a chat about about this this uh, classic game. And uh, to everyone listening, yeah, like uh, look it up. Uh, if if you still have a PS3, you can still play it. You download it right now. If you have a Vita, you can also get it on PlayStation Network. Wait, and then you can play it on the PS4 through the Vita, right? <laughs> Wait, can you? <laughs> Try that, but maybe. Yeah, there's like, I thought that was one of the things. Oh, well, I'll go look it up. It was also <laughs> part of, if you all recall, the, the beautiful red box of the Sony Greatest Hits collection. Uh, it was uh, marked as a Greatest Hits at some point. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They did those tastefully. They didn't have a nice... Nice graphic design. All right. Thanks, everyone, for uh, listening to the fifth Art Eater podcast. Uh, it's, it's been a real pleasure uh, doing this. Um, yeah, we're, we're going to keep this going. It's, it's always really fun to talk to you guys, Sean, Andy. Uh, so thanks to everyone for, for listening. Um, if you enjoy this podcast, uh, yeah, uh, please, you can follow along on Twitter. Uh, we're at Art Eater Podcast. Um, that's, that's our Twitter handle. Uh, and you can, you know, subscribe to the podcast on uh, through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, whatever your favorite podcasting platform is. Um, please subscribe. Uh, if we're not on your favorite platform, uh, please let us know. Um, and yeah, go ahead and you know send us a message on on Twitter. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know um, if you have any any further comments on anything we've been discussing, or um, if you have any suggestions for, for future topics. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, <laughs> we'll, we'll probably just ignore it and talk about whatever we want to talk about, but yeah, <laughs> just let us know anyways. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for listening. Uh, have, have a good night, everyone. Or good day. Or good, good morning. Good, good morning. week. Have a good one. Have a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs>